The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online. Plus, we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to a slightly new format for the edition podcast. We're going to be talking a little bit more about the magazine, as per usual, but trying to give some insight into the thought process behind putting the spectator to bed each week. I'm Laura Prendergast, the Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, the Spectator's features editor. So, Lara, we're speaking on Wednesday afternoon. The magazine went to press just a couple of hours ago. Uh, and our cover line for this week is Plan BB. Stalemate suits Netanyahu, says Anshel Pfeffer. Can you talk our readers through why we settled on this cover this week? Well, on, on Friday, Netanyahu chose to release this day after Hamas plan for post-war Gaza. And we asked Angel Pfeffer to, to look a little bit more into what, what's actually going on there. And, and, and as he says in the piece, the plan doesn't actually seem designed to end the war in Gaza. If anything, it seems to be more about Netanyahu's own political survival. I think Netanyahu is a, obviously a kind of fascinating political figure, and it is interesting how the war in Gaza is being used, as, as Angel says, to bolster his own mm. political position. So that that's that's the cover. And, and we asked Morton to come up with an image for it. Obviously, it's quite a difficult thing to depict, but I think the way he's shown Netanyahu from behind, surveying the ruins of Gaza and looking over towards other parts of, I suppose it's Israel or Israel's borders, is, is kind of a, a clever way of doing it. Mm. And uh, to give a bit more insight about it, we actually just spoke to Professor Uzi Arad, who we're very keen to talk to about this piece, because we actually first interviewed him on this podcast just after the October 7th attacks. And he said some very interesting things about Prime Minister Netanyahu's strategy, namely that he thought that it was a self-serving strategy towards Gaza. And given that Uzi is the former national security advisor to Netanyahu, as well as the former head of the Israeli National Security Council, he's extremely well placed to give an insight about what's going on. So this is what he had to say. Uzi, Anshel Pfeffer has written the cover piece for The Spectator this week, in which he starts by writing about Prime Minister Netanyahu's plan for a post-war Gaza. Uh, And he describes this plan as vague and contradictory and self-serving. I would like to start by asking, what did you make of his day after Hamas plan, or non-plan, as Anshel puts it? Well, yes, it is is certainly uh, vague, because uh, near as I can tell, he has uh, in mind the notion of the contours of such an arrangement as it should be brought about, and it has some basic conditions, so to speak, and they they shape his uh, position on that issue. Clearly, he understands that should there be a success to Israel in either destroying or degrading the Hamas uh, military and terrorist capabilities in the Gaza Strip, in its entirety or near as much as that, and at the same time 
Hamas uh, will also lose the political control over the Strip and would have to go underground. What would be then needed is some kind of a presence in Gaza that would make sure that Hamas cannot regroup or resurface or resume guerrilla, so to speak, terrorist activities from the Gaza Strip into Israel. And for that, somebody has to do the job. The goal that he said, uh, he set it for himself, is to have the Gaza Strip demilitarized. Now, you may wonder why that choice of word. That choice of word is that this goal has international legitimacy. Back when we used to have negotiations with the Palestinians, and in the process of the Oslo negotiations, it became to be accepted that areas that Israel would evacuate would be demilitarized. Any piece of territory evacuated by the Israeli forces, be it on the West Bank or in Gaza, that that piece of territory would be demilitarized. That is to say, if the area were to be governed by some Palestinian entity or authority, uh, they would have only police forces and they would have only necessary uh, weapons for maintaining law and order, but not military means. That is to say, not heavy weapons and certainly not rockets of the kind that can be lobbed at Israel and destroy and hit civilian targets and so forth. Hmm. So that goal remains a kind of a, of, of, a, of a necessary condition about what should the Gaza Strip look like in the future. Second is who are going to do the job? For the time being, there is no one. But ideas uh, that have surfaced have called for the possibility of some inter-Arab forces that would form such a, a capability and would deploy. Uh, you could have Egyptian participation in it. You could have even uh, international capability of the kind that have been established for similar such peacekeeping formations. There was once a multinational force in the Sinai that kept the ceasefire. So one has to create that, that structure that would do it. And for the time being, it has not yet been accomplished. Netanyahu, incidentally, was not willing to accept the Palestinian Authority itself, the one that is placed now on the West Bank. Uh, and his position is because the Palestinian Authority itself is not fully yeah, applied or implemented its own obligations the West Bank of all such uh, forces. And besides, it has not shown the determination to do that job effectively and fully. But Netanyahu has now to contend with the fact that it is the accepted view of the international community and some of the players that have been involved in the negotiations around this crisis, primarily the United States, that have said that they would like to see Palestinians 
assume the job, particularly, possibly, the Palestinian Authority itself, to which the American position has been that Netanyahu has to understand that there is an expectation of a resumed negotiations with the Palestinian Authority so as to proceed towards the long-term goal of resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict through the formula of a two-state solution. Netanyahu, for his own political reasons, and due to the character of the coalition that he now builds on politically, cannot accept that, and he is reluctant to accept it, although in the past he did when it served his views. Uh, he joined the roadmap at the time. He joined the Oslo process at the time, and he did accept the notion of a two-state solution, but he backtracked from that due to his political conditions. And now he has not yet accepted that goal, but I assume he will eventually. Uh, he will edge toward that, saying that fine, but this is not an immediate goal because there is a long way to go until a process would uh, yield a two-state solution. The Palestinian Authority is not yet ready. Its leadership is not in place. Uh, there is about to be a change of leadership due to the longevity of uh, the current leader. Uh, so he may come to accept the fact that it is a two-state solution that should be the long term, saying that it is something that may take years until the Palestinian Authority truly accept the notion of the legitimacy of the state of Israel, recognizes Israel, and is going in the direction of establishing such a thing. So we're still in a kind of a phased approach, which depends much on the diplomatic negotiations and the bargaining that is going on, uh, with view to have actually a roadmap how to extricate oneself from this crisis. And while this is going, the risks of further escalation and even escalation to the north of Israel is still not negligible. Easy, one of the points which you've just touched on there is that Angel says in his piece that so long as there is the risk of escalation, the impetus for political change has, is subdued, so therefore Netanyahu is, is incentivized to keep up this stalemate situation. What do you make of that? Could you talk a little bit about um, Netanyahu's own political situation right now? Well, you see, this condition in the Gaza Strip has been caused by Hamas essentially exploiting what they thought would be an opportune moment to launch their terrible attack, terribly destructive, because Israel was already in the midst of a domestic crisis, a domestic political crisis of very great proportions, in which Netanyahu was trying to advance some political objectives, some constitutional changes that he wanted to effect using his majority in parliament, but he railroaded that to such an extent, and it involved infringement on what many thought was the democratic, liberal structure of Israel, that there was a, 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 an outcry, and which led to massive demonstrations 
and resistance, political resistance to that. But the character that this assumed and the degree of antagonisms within the Israeli society and political class and the public at large came very close to a civil war. Not violent yet, but possibly reached that position. So Netanyahu has been battling domestically with great opposition to what his policies were. He faces still the legal problems because of him being indicted and he's now there's some judicial process about him. So he had, he's risking being involved in this. And he's been trying to get himself out of those legal problems by changing the constitution and changing the law. And that caused that civil condition. Now, Netanyahu has lost some credibility in Israel itself. And his legitimacy as a leader rests on the fact that in the elections, he won a majority, but it is not an overwhelming majority. And there are now many appeals in Israel to have early elections, precisely now, because Israel is so divided on those issues uh, with a large part of the Israeli society wanting Netanyahu's resignation. He's also held guilty of some of the underperformance of the Israeli security forces and intelligence. He's held accountable for that. So he is in that condition, that condition of Israel being politically unstable with his leadership being challenged is the circumstance that encouraged the Hamas to mount their attack at this point. And, um, and that condition remains. One doesn't know how far this will go because the demonstrations now against Netanyahu are held daily. They have been restrained because of the condition of war and that he appeals for national unity while a war is going on. But at the moment that the hostilities will subside, one can assume the resumption of the opposition calling either for his resignation or for new elections, which depends on his ability to hold on to his coalition or not. But this, of course, introduces a high degree of volatility into the Israeli political condition, and that also affects his conduct of the military campaign. He wants, naturally, to keep hostilities going on, not only in order to consummate uh, the effects and results of the military campaign, but also to benefit from this moment of, of a war, a rallying for national unity and saying that one cannot deal with politics as long as the guns are firing. Hmm. So this is a very dynamic situation. Netanyahu is under pressure, is under great pressure of all kinds. And as a consequence of that, Israel is torn still in a, in a very difficult semi-civil war, which have gone very, very intensive, yet not violent yet, and at the same time facing some of the results of the Hamas attack. For example, the displaced Israeli civilians who had to evacuate their residences in the south or in the north, creating a huge problem 
of displaced civilians in Israel, and of course to restore security to the southern part of Israel and to the northern, and also to put down the Hezbollah attacks. All these are pressures which are on Netanyahu's table, and uh, and he manages uh, both campaigns in the way that best serves him, sometimes at the expense of Israel's own security. But please tell me, uh, you know, while the world is uh, here in our corner of the world, these mm. events are, are tragic and destructive. At the same time, we look to the rest of the world, and lo and behold, other parts of the world are in turmoil, and political instabilities are all over. And leaders are not rising to the occasion, not only in Israel, mm. but elsewhere. And we look also into European, the European condition and the situation of uh, European governance and, uh, of course, the wars elsewhere. Too many flashpoints. Yes. Too many risks. Yeah. And um, I do hope that in these global battles, uh, Israel would still be on the side of the democracies, the Western liberal democracies, because they too, in some way, face some other forms of the same threat that we have been now exposed to, that of radical Islam, terrorist, extremely deadly, vicious, which is active not only in this part of the world, it's part in the rest parts of the Middle East and elsewhere. This is a global battle which have, we have not uh, yet succeeded in defeating. Well, Uzi, thank Uzi, you very thank much. You so much. Thank you so Lovely much for joining us. <laughs> thank you very much. Hope to see you thank again very you. soon. And, and I'm wishing you all the best. Well, what else did you enjoy in this week's issue that you'd like to mention? There's a piece I really like by Ascender Maxton Graham, who I think is a wonderful writer. And she's identified a group that she calls the sad clappies, which is a twist on the happy clappies, you know, the kind of evangelical Christians who clap along to hymns during church services. And uh, that, that term, happy clappies, has been around since the 1980s. But she's identified the sad clappies. Um, and I, ha I completely agree with her because I've noticed this too. It's people who clap at funerals, you know, after someone gives a eulogy or a tribute or they read a poem or whatever. And they all clap. I, I don't know, maybe adds a sort of well done for getting through this difficult moment sort of thing. But the problem mm. is, once you start doing it, you've got to do it after every single every single tribute. Uh, and... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks, Lara. <laughs> um, anyway, Ascender explains it much better than I've just done. So let's hear an extract from her piece now. It's rare to go to a funeral or memorial service these days where clapping doesn't happen. It usually starts after the first of the often rather too many tributes. The speaker, son, daughter, grandson, old school friend, business associate, steps down from the lectern, and where there used to be silence, which allowed their words to hang in the air, applause breaks out. The applause gates are opened. Clapping will now happen at the end of every subsequent tribute. And when the great-grandchild gets up to read out a passage from Winnie the Pooh, he or she will be swamped with applause too. Some see this as an excellent innovation, striking a much-needed note of celebration, as one funeral-goer I spoke to put it. The applause is partly for the speaker's words and partly for the deceased, so it's heavily emotionally charged, cathartic applause, and the younger generation love it as they feel a bit uncomfortable with the church's solemnity and long for a lightening of the tone and a bit of participation. 
At the end of George Alagaya's memorial service at St Martin in the Fields in July, the Order of Service specifically invited everyone to clap. A final round of applause for George, exactly one minute, cheering aloud. The applause raised the roof, according to the BBC's account, and went on for far longer than a minute. How about you, Lara? What do you like from this week? There's a, a column by Matthew Paris in this week's issue in which he, he I suppose he's sort of reviewing a book, but it's, it's a book called Some Men in London, Volume 1, Queer Life, 1945 to 1959, by an author called Peter Parker. And, and he says, as Matthew points out, the, the aim of this book is to just remind older readers and, and younger ones just how, as he says, mad, cruel, ridiculous and stupid the British were about homosexuality only a couple of generations ago. And he just, it sounds like a brilliant book in that it's a collection of different portraits, just observations of from that time. And I think Matthew's right to draw readers' attention to it. And then there's another piece in the art section, which is the Lead Arts Review, um, written by Richard Bratby, where he talks about this man called Christopher Gunning, who died last March, age 78, who I hadn't heard of, but he was a brilliant composer who not only composed original symphonies, but also composed lots of music for ads and films and TVs, including the Poirot theme tune. There was just also one part of it where he mentions that the only other person he can think of who was as successful at serious art and advertising was Salman Rushdie. And, well, I think you and I were both surprised to discover that Salman Rushdie coined the phrase naughty but nice when he was working for Ogilvy. So he learns something new every week. Yeah. The second feature we're going to talk about in a little bit more detail is by Lucas de Guttis, the Spectator's editorial manager. He's been to Latvia to speak to people who are facing deportation because they're ethnic Russian and they don't speak Latvian. And there's new there's new rule change, which means that unless they learn Latvian, they could be deported. Uh, so Lucas spoke to some of the people who are facing this rather grim prospect and also spoke to some of the politicians who are implementing the policy. Well, we spoke to Lucas earlier, along with Inga Springe, the investigative journalist at Re Baltica, who has been across this story. Lucas, you write in the magazine this week about the new language requirement law that has come into force in Latvia and the people who are affected by this policy change. Could you start by just briefly summarising for our listeners what this policy means? Sure. So in the autumn of 2022... Latvia, a Baltic country, also a former Soviet country, it introduced a an amendment to the immigration law which targets the Russian citizens in Latvia. And the Russian citizens were instructed to essentially apply for a new residence permit. But a condition of this residence permit was to demonstrate their language proficiency in Latvian. And around 16,000 Russian citizens applied for this new permit and they sat the tests. But there was a number of Russian citizens who were unable to complete this test and pass it. They were given two attempts only. And if they were unable to do so, then they were basically unable to extend their residence in Latvia and were instructed to leave the country. And you say in your piece, some of the people that this law affects are people who have lived here for their entire lives or almost their entire lives and are now facing the possibility of deportation. Is that right? That's correct. Um, Some of them were actually born in Latvia, whereas others uh, came to Latvia during the Soviet years. But most of them also at a young age. 
Inga, am I right in thinking that you support this new law in principle? And, and if so, could you take us through your thinking on the matter? Mm-hmm. So um, I can understand why this, um, what was the maybe main idea of this law? So it's, uh, we feel threatened because now, you know, the war is going in Ukraine and we always been afraid as a country and as a nation from Russia. And now when we see what's happening in Ukraine, there is this kind of feel that we need to do something more and to be more secure. And that's why there was this idea about the laws that if, if people who are living in Latvia and who have Russian uh, passports, they need to also show that they know Latvian language. But there was already one problem and this law was implemented, or like these amendments were implemented. It was pre-election time. So it was already like kind of populistic time when uh, coalition parties were thinking like how to get more uh, votes during election time. And I think that's why this law was made in a rush and it was populistic. As like, as an essence, I approve this idea. It's very good, but I think it was uh, done badly. And there are several reasons why it was done badly because my main, uh, I am one of the outspoken persons about this law in, in Latvia. And that's why many Latvians hate me. I have received a lot of hate because of my opinion. But my main argument is like that half of these people who were supposed to take this exam, they are 65 years and older. And I know we have different cognitive abilities for people who are quite after 65, but there are many people, and we know that these pensioners, they are not among the richest and wealthiest and well-educated people. So it means already that many of them are not capable anymore to learn Latvian language. And that's why I'm calling this amendment populistic. And already from the beginning, I was saying many, there will be thousands of people, it's my assumption, who will not be able to pass this exam just because they are already quite old. They just don't have any more like brain capacity to do this. And then as, as a result, I think if the goal of the law was like to make Latvia more secure, I think we partly we achieve also like an opposite result. We are actually splitting society. And has, has the new law been, you mentioned obviously getting a lot of hate for it. Does that, does that suggest that it has actually been quite popular? Yes, and I can understand also these people who kind of hate me for what I'm saying. I totally approve that, yes, if you've been living whole your life in Latvia and you don't know Latvian language, it shows disrespect. It shows some arrogance. It's not good. But from other side, we are requiring to learn Latvian language and prove it now. Because one of the arguments that opponents are telling to me is these people had 30 years time to learn language. Yes, I agree. And it's very bad that they didn't learn the language. But this law was implemented now and we actually gave them like eight, seven months to learn the language. Yes, it, it, in total, it was like one year. But I think at the beginning, even Latvians didn't understand what actually this law meant and now, out of this, like like I mentioned, out of this, around twenty thousand people to whom applied this, like almost like half was like sixty five and plus. And at the beginning, there were also requirements like about mandatory mandatory monthly income, which these people should have. But it was I don't remember actually anymore, like around five hundred euros. And many of these people have these Russian pensions. One of the reasons why they took Russian citizenship, and it's far less than 500. So there were already like this many steps which showed that this amendment was populistic. It wasn't like actually realistic. And so far we've seen that, I'm sorry, but I was right. And I also, I don't believe that we will be able or we will deport some of these people because many of these people don't have anyone in Russia. It's like, what are we going to do? Take them to Russian border and leave there, these old people, just because they don't know Latvian language. I don't think it's 
humane. But many Latvians would oppose me by saying, see what Russia is doing in Ukraine. And these people belong, they chose to belong to Russia because they took citizenship and they need to now take responsibility for their choice, which they did, I don't know, 10 years ago when they took the Russian passports. Hmm. Uh, Lucas, in your piece, you you argue that the this law is illiberal, but are you not sympathetic to the view that Inga put forward that there's a there's somewhat an arrogance if you live your entire life in a country and refuse to learn the language? I am actually sympathetic with that argument. Um, I just think it is too drastic to expect them to learn it so quickly. And we've also got to take into consideration the fact that a quarter of Latvia's population are ethnic Russians. So, um, and the Russians I did speak to, most of the time, they do actually have a basic understanding of Latvian and they're able to converse in Latvian. But some of these tests actually that they were sitting don't reflect that accurately. Now, I was talking to one of the ethnic Russians who actually had a Latvian language certificate issued in 1993 which she told me about, and that was rejected. So she was still made to sit these exams, but it seems that the dialect or grammatical errors meant that she could not pass it. Now, I think it's unreasonable to expect people who did not go to school and learn Latvian to suddenly be able to have the grammatical understanding of the Latvian language. So I do sympathize with this argument. I just think we need to give it more time. Perhaps the next generation of people who grow up in Latvia will have the understanding of the language and Russian alongside it as well. Inga, one of the points um, that Lucas makes very well in his piece is that the irony of all of this is that historically most Latvians are well aware of the evils of illiberalism and, and the kind of long struggle that the country went through to gain its freedoms. So do you, do you sort of sense at the moment that the, perhaps Latvia is going through a, a, a liberal moment? I think Latvians are afraid. I think this is the main reason why all these things which are happening now, like um, removing monuments, changing names, names of the streets, um, asking uh, to pass this exam, people already like in white old age, People are just really afraid. And when we every even like this week, like there is again, like people are so alarmed because we see that Ukraine is not winning the war. And we know we still remember where there are still like in families, people who remember deportations to Siberia, how people were dying from starvation and how cruel Russians actually were in like, I don't know, 70, 80 years ago when Latvians were deported. And that's why there are all these moments. But I think it's sometimes too sharp and the problem is in a way what I feel we start to dehumanize all Russians. We treat all Russians as one mass and this is what I'm saying. We can't now be cruel to some uh, local uh, old Latvian Russian pensioners because of what cruel Russian army is doing with Ukrainians and it's terrible what they are doing. I totally agree with this. But we can't put all Russians in one sack, like, and say that they all are the same. And um, and I think that's the problem that many of Latvians also they even don't interact or we have this bad um, experience in interaction with Russians. And yes, and there are like quite part of Russians who live in Latvia and they are arrogant, like I said, and they don't feel need to learn Russians. But at the same time, we also, we had four episode movie and we lived like quite the time in Daugavpils. We put up a pop-up editorial in Daugavpils, main walking street, and we spoke for a week with people there. 
And uh, so it's few Latvians who came because the majority of people in, in Daugavpils are Russians. So it's Latvians who came. They, they said that they feel feel like minority because it's very hard to be Latvian in Daugavpils. Also, everyone acknowledged that now you can survive with Latvian language, that people understand Latvian language. But from other side, there are also like uh, Russians came and they said, but I'm really trying to learn this language, but it's so hard and I don't uh, need it in daily life. The main argument for them is that we live in our own community and we don't need this language. And that's why we don't have, we don't know it or we don't have on such a level to pass this exam because the exam is also quite harsh. And many Russians who actually were failing the exams, they failed in writing part. And we also had the discussion among ourselves why do they need perfectly write like perfect grammar like in Latvian? Why it's it, I think the main essence to know the language is to be able to communicate and to speak. And the language exam actually requires to pass all three parts. You need to collect these certain points, like in, in speaking, understanding, and, and writing, I think. But the main thing is Latvians are afraid. Some of them are fed up because we have been tolerated. In Latvian, a part of society opinion, we've been tolerating that there is this Russian population who don't speak Russian and uh, and they, they felt okay with that. But no, Latvians are saying, no, it's not okay. If you want to live there, you want to belong to this community, you need to know the language. And I agree with this, you need to know. But I think it's a bit too late to ask 70-year-old person to learn during eight months language. Yes. Well, Inga and Lucas, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Well, was there anything else that you particularly enjoyed this week? Well, I think the book section in this week's magazine is particularly strong. Just a lot of very good ones in there. But I particularly liked there's there's a really good dual review by Mark Cocker reviewing one book about myths and stories around wolves in Britain. Uh, and I'm always quite fascinated with wolves and the sort of uh, folklore stories around them or even the politics around their possible reintroduction and so on. So I found that very interesting. And he also reviews... The, a book about the return of wild boar to Britain. So boar and wolves, um, I feel you can't go wrong. And finally, there's there's uh, a review of a book which we're going to talk about in a bit more detail for our final section, which is Tom Hodgkinson reviewing Free Time, The History of an Elusive Ideal by Gary S. Cross. And he describes it as essentially an attempt to answer the central question which has been with mankind for as long as there's been the written word, which is why do we not have more free time and when we do, why do we keep wasting it? And we thought this would be a fantastic topic to speak to our Wikiman columnist Rory Sutherland about. And he had some fantastic ideas about free time and how to spend it when we spoke to him earlier. I have a friend who always recommended that we should work a four-day week. And his argument was that you needed a three-day weekend because there are three things you need to do on a weekend. You need to catch up on all your shit, you know, admin, that kind of thing, shopping, you know, uh, paying your gas bill, okay? You need a day which you spend with friends being entirely sociable, and you need a day spent doing absolutely nothing. He always argued that the two-day weekend failed because you always ended up not doing one of those three things. And... um you know, if you think about it, if you just do admin and then do nothing, it feels a bit like a wasted weekend. You know, likewise, if you don't have your day spent doing nothing, it it's generally you haven't really relaxed properly. And I've always thought there's a certain logic to this. I think it's also worth noting that we do, the Americans, Canadians, perhaps and Japanese are outliers here. 
in that most countries do actually translate higher living standards into a mixture of more money and more leisure. The United States is unusual in particular, not because it doesn't take more leisure, but it tends to take it at the beginning of life in the form of higher education. And at the end of life, in terms of earlier retirement, um, and I, th I think retirement's actually, a, you know, in some ways we have these bizarre tax breaks for retiring, which more or less are incentives for you to leave the workforce. When in a modern environment, I would have thought tapering off the amount you worked would be vastly better than effectively going 100% and then stopping overnight. There's quite a high incidence of people dying or having, you know, general forms of mental distress when you go from working full-time to working not at all. So there are, you know, there are questions about this. I'm quite sympathetic to uh, ideas like experimentation with a four-day week and flexible working. And that's because, to be honest, what nobody seems to notice in economics is that most of the gains we have through cheaper and better consumer goods, and in some cases increased earnings, simply get sucked up by the property market. Okay, So a combination of cheap and easy money and the fact that everybody basically defaults to spending as much on their house as they can possibly afford has effectively caused many, many what should... The question to ask is not why is there poverty and injustice, it's why hasn't everybody got a hot tub? <laughs> the, re the reason for that is property price increases, and that actually applies most severely, I think, to the two-income household. So if you look at a family, let's say, let's assume two parties, let's assume maybe you know 0.7 children, what really happened... Over time. Now, don't shoot the messenger here, because the two people who write about this most are Faye, well, Faye Weldon, who used to speak about it a lot, as does Elizabeth Warren, the left of centre senator from Massachusetts and one time presidential candidate. That the double income trap has really meant that every family is now 35 hours of discretionary leisure time down for no real economic gain because the gain has been mopped up, particularly in the US where you have competition for school districts, the gain has just been mopped up by rent-seeking in the property industry um, and, and uh, asset, asset price gains in the property industry. So one of the reasons I'm not entirely unsympathetic to uh, greater calls for leisure is it's worth noting that the fact that you cannot maintain a household on one income has been very, very costly to very large numbers of people, single-parent families particularly, okay, Whereas weirdly, student accommodation, where you get six people sharing a house, effectively six students can outbid one family. And that, when you look at it, is a massive loss of leisure per household over the last uh, sort of 50 years. Now, I'm, not, I'm not making a gender point here at all. I'm merely making the point that when you have a world where two people need to work in order to maintain a household, it gets very difficult to have children. It gets very difficult to be a single parent. It makes it extremely difficult just to be a singleton in London, unless you want to live in a bedsit. As a Georgist, I think, you know, the solution is, of course, to tax land values, but I'm not having much luck on that. But I, 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 I've just come back from Fuerteventura, fascinatingly, where you do see the beginning of something, which is a trend which is all around. It, it particularly, I think, ties in with surf culture there. I rather like surf culture, by the way. It basically fills a town with quite agreeable hippies. <laughs> you also see a huge instance of these kind of uh, nomadic workplaces, you know, flexible offices, typically close to the beach. And I can see a proportion of the population effectively becoming slightly nomadic if you've got a particular job where you can do it from anywhere. 
Elon Musk's Starlink makes that a bit easier after all. So going slightly off grid might be more common. But what is quite interesting now, which I think we ought to consider, is that your working hours and your place of work were non-negotiable pre-COVID. And now they're part of your negotiation with your employer, which is, well, rather than having more money, I'd rather have one of the things Ogilvy offers is four weeks of working from anywhere. So four weeks of the year, you should demand this of Fraser, by the way, four weeks of the year, you can effectively go and work. We'll give it a go. <laughs> and so if you've got someone you need to look after, if, you're, if you've got caring responsibilities, if you're an expat and you just need to go home for a few weeks, you're allowed to do that with line manager's permission for four weeks in addition to your vacation allowance. That strikes me as a pretty intelligent compromise. But what is quite interesting is to what extent will working conditions become as much a status indicator as salary once was, because previously the only negotiable component of work was how much do you pay me? And now I think we've broken that norm where another component of your negotiation with your employer will be what flexibility can you offer me, what autonomy and what quality of life benefits? Because while I was in Fuerteventura, I took it as a vacation. I worked for a few hours a day. It doesn't bother me. I mean, it's dark some of the time. I might as well do some work. Um, I don't want to spend the entire day on the beach. But actually, some greater infusion of leisure for, for, for the class who, let's face it, people aged between 25 and about 55 can justifiably feel that they're just paying for everybody else. You know, you're working your balls off so that retired people on public sector um, final salary pensions can float around the local cafes doing bugger all so students can stay in student accommodation and student lifestyles for longer there is a reasonable complaint of the middle-aged or the young middle-aged who haven't had the property price gains that the other generation did, that they're kind of footing the bill for everybody. Rory, there's a line in Will Hodginson's review that I'd love to get your opinion on. He says that people seem to prefer money to time, to earn a lot and spend a lot on quick hits of pleasure. Do you agree with that? And would you advocate perhaps a, a return to slow consumption? Uh, you might argue that the two are actually related, which is that when you... There's actually, bizarrely, um, a, a segment spotted online of people who are very, very heavy e email users who are also very, very heavy internet shoppers. And the psychology there of kind of retail therapy is sod this. I've just spent three and a half hours doing email. I'm going to buy myself a treat. You know, the, you know, the whole of Costa and Pret and Starbucks are to some extent catering to what you might call the earned reward, the earned treat economy, which is I've had a gruelling day, I owe myself something. And so there is an argument that with more leisure, our patterns of consumption uh, might actually become slower. I mean, you notice during the pandemic, things like home baking, uh, you know, suddenly took off. Time-consuming activities effectively, which are which are enjoyable but slow, cooking being an obvious one. Um, those things are, in, in a way, in, you know, completely harmless. They generate a lot of pleasure. I think an awful lot of this is kind of... Um, I, Paul Dolan, the professor of, uh, sort of professor of happiness at the LSE, always said that, you know, a lot of things are a bit like heroin, that, you know, you get, a, you get an initial hit and then you need more and more to maintain the kind of initial hit. And there's a concept called the hedonic treadmill, which is effectively kind of rivalrous status consumption, which is a kind of a negative sum game. I work in advertising, but I buy that argument that actually quite a lot of consumption is misdirected and that people with more leisure time, um, and the interesting thing about 
being in first Ventura was uh, apart from the else I didn't spend very much because I didn't feel the urge quick trip to Lidl to stock up on an enormous leg of ham. And I was basically <laughs> happy for the week. I'm worried. You, I mean, the book touches on historical leisure time as well. Are there any periods of history that you think have been particularly good for for leisure time? Well, it's interesting, of course, you go back to the 19th century and Torsten Veblen's theory of the leisure class was that back in the 19th century, leisure was the status good because it demonstrated you had enough money not to have to work. What is utterly peculiar to me, I started work in 1988, is that in the course of the 30 years where I've worked, this uh, absolute injection of American work culture where you are what your job is, okay, and that being busy is a massive badge of honour because it suggests you're indispensable and valuable, that didn't... I mean, okay, it was it was already present in the mid-'80s, but that wasn't really a factor in the UK before that, the extent to which people derived status from being incredibly busy. And one of the arguments you could make in favour of greater leisure is that it would lead to better consumption. Economists never debate the quality of consumption because the assumption of mainstream neoliberal economics is that everybody optimises their own utility. They have perfect information, perfect trust, and they know how to spend every penny to maximise their short and long-term happiness. Well, yeah, good luck with that one, mate. I mean, it's the most bizarre and ridiculous assumption you can possibly imagine. OK, I mean, it's it's so absurd. It's just there to make economics mathematically tractable by removing yet another variable, in this case, psychology. But I think there is an argument to say that, um, uh, you know, I don't I don't think it's the job of conservatism to maximize annualized GDP growth. It's to improve the quality of life for families, particularly for families and for wider society. And I think it is I think it is plausible to say that a very, very busy culture doesn't spend money very well. As I said, they're these kind of weird kind of heroin hit purchases. I'm guilty of them myself. Okay. You know, I've, the worst one, by the way, never, a bit of a tip from Agat, never buy anything at an airport. I don't know why, but airports just scramble your brain. <laughs> and I've noticed this. I've come back from a business meeting. I'm t- I ended up with something like a, a Bluetooth-activated weather station or something. Right? <laughs> it was nothing to do with utility or, or the, my quality of life. It was just that feeling that I deserved a treat after a gr- you know after a fairly grueling business trip. And I think you know I think there's an interest you know there's an interesting question to be raised here on you know where, where we spend our money and how we spend it and if we had more time would we actually w- would the pound to hedonic transfer in other words would the happiness we gain per pound be actually better if we simply had more time in which to spend it That was Rory Sutherland Will do you think you have enough free time like more less <laughs> Such a leading question, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think I probably have the exact right amount of free time. I, I am trying to use my free time more productively this year, though. I've set myself almost a sort of Stalinist quota for my mm, free time. What are you doing? Well, your... I've my New Year's resolution was to read two books a week. And I'm How, trying to stick going? to that. I'm on track. I'm on it's track. Very, very yeah, I've, done, I've done 18 books this year so far. Two week. I've got long commutes, Lara. That's my point. <laughs> That's so true. I the, the, idea, the, idea of, the idea of how to use my free time is on very much on my mind on these commutes so uh that's that's what i'm doing at the moment what about you well i think with two small children i'm surprised you have any free time with two children well as, as, as i do that's true I, I didn't really have long commutes but i don't know i feel like 
I quite like the balance of five days and then a two-day weekend. I feel like a four-day week feels too short to me. Mm. I know lots of people think otherwise. And that's it for this week. Thank you very much for the positive feedback that we've received for the new format. It's always fantastic to hear from listeners. And those of you who have been in touch have told us that you've liked it. So uh, we'll assume that that's the majority opinion. And so for anyone who does want to leave any feedback, please do be in touch at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do pick up a copy of the magazine to read everything we've talked about in full. I'm William Moore. And I'm Lara Prendergast, and we do hope you'll join us again next week. I'll actually be away next week. I'm off to Japan, but... We'll miss I, you very much. Thank you, Will. But stepping into my shoes will be our Deputy Features Editor, Gus Carter, who I'm sure will do a brilliant job. <laughs>